This is Overture, the Prelude Podcast. Welcome to the Prelude Podcast. My name is Christopher Willis. And I'm Alex. Today we have an action-packed podcast for you today. So we're going to be talking about heavy reliance on EDRs and frameworks. Uh, we're going to cover some current TTP releases and Operator 1.3 that we just released this week. And then we're going to go in and talk a little bit about uh, some new upcoming content uh, drop releases. Um, and then we'll finish it up. So without further ado, let's get into it. So let's start off with EDRs and frameworks. So this was a topic that I brought up to Alex recently. And, you know, EDRs are expensive, and yet most companies have at least one EDR. And the same goes for frameworks. So any cybersecurity framework that you do, it's pretty much a huge investment cost. And a lot of these big enterprises, they end up with so many different frameworks that they've had to implement. And even some of those even clash. And it's, you know, it's crazy because so many companies spend so much investment to try to implement these things. And yet they have so many holes in them. Uh, and so it's, it becomes a point where you end up in a situation where everybody relies on these frameworks and EDRs and are not necessarily relying on all the other things that yeah. you need to do in order to be secure. In yeah, I think it's part of a larger, a, a larger problem in the transition that's been happening w between information technology and cyber. Um, and it's something I actually wrote a blog post about recently. Um, it's, it's part of a blog post I titled, well, why I dislike the term red team. Um, despite the clickbaity name, the, the core point is the Air Force actually had to undergo this transition in understanding of how do you communicate in an operations mindset when it comes to cybersecurity versus just a traditional IT compliance mindset. And... And realistically, when it comes to dependence on EDRs and frameworks, I think a, a lot of it is looking for a tool that can kind of do everything and just like solve the problem. And that's very much a compliance mindset versus that operations mindset of it's like an active battle space and we need to be thinking of how do we meet, respond, and react to, to th like live threats and active threats that are changing and morphing every day. Yeah, uh, like the whole compliance piece uh, always gets me because it's like people just end up like, you know, everybody throws around HIPAA compliance and HIPAA compliance is just one of those things that's like, yep, we're compliant and it's a checkbox and here you go. Yeah, and and in the past, you and I have had to, you and I have had to go through and do like ISO 2700 and uh, like what NIST 800-171 uh, for like a DFARS compliant network. And we've done that, but we do those things and we kind of laugh because we're like, okay, I mean, sure, we're on paper objectively, quote, secure, but you, you and I both know that's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of times that takes away from some of the uh, more secure things you could do. So you spend so much time trying to get DFARS compliance, for instance, and not necessarily think about like, oh yeah, like I really should be focusing more on these things, but I'm having to do this DFARS compliance, which ends up like being way more, 
Like, yeah. at least in that instance, when we were trying to do DFARS compliance, it was way too much for what we were trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, you know, we, we shouldn't present problems without solutions. And one of the, the solutions that has been employed, in again, in the Air Force is, and again, a core point of that blog post that I wrote is using the, the language and common vernacular relevant to your industry and applying like IT as an enabling force in an operations sense. And what I mean by that is if you really want to start getting after the problem of how do you secure a network, in my opinion, where you start is understanding critical assets, like from everything else aside, forget about compliance, forget about all that. What are the critical assets in your business? Um, what are, you know, crown jewels is, is what I think MITRE calls it, like doing a crown jewels analysis. When you're doing it for uh, like a threat actor, right? You're looking for their centers of gravity. So what are those centers of gravity? What are those crown jewels? Once you know what's important to you, uh, you can start building stuff like uh, in, in the military. Again, we would call it like a prioritized defended asset list. What do I actually need in order to do the bare minimum operations for my business? Um, so when you look at something like HIPAA compliance, right, securing the records of your of, of your clientele is very important to the success of your business because if you get sued, you're going to go out of business. If you lose the data, you're going to go out of business. So compliance and like pursuing that HIPAA compliance should be a task that is helping you achieve an overall objective of securing your critical assets. So it's a little bit of a transition of mindset there. Once you have this type of compliance, like that doesn't mean that you're, you're good to go. And yeah. And so I, I think in a lot of cases, even for, especially for small business, right? It takes so much uplift in order to be compliant in some type of framework because all these frameworks are designed for big, huge enterprises. Yeah. And yet, uh, then once you get to that, you've spent all your money <laughs> and you've, you've spent your pocket of gold, right? And now you have no, you, you really have zero or to little resources in order to then be able to do the rest of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so like, uh, one of those things is, is, is like all the holes and gaps that you end up with, even when you have these, these frameworks in use. Yeah. I like to say that compliance gets you to a point where you can start operations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's not an end. It's a means to the, the beginning of actually being able to handle and respond to threats, which ultimately sounds very daunting. Uh, but again, it goes back to like at its core, if you can identify what what is critically important to your business, that's going to help you know where to spend your time, resources in general, right? Time, money, personnel. I think this also ties into the EDR space, right? So like once you figured out what your crown jewels are and then you start putting some type of detection metrics in place, then you just think, okay, well, now that I have this detection and remediation uh, uh, steps in place for these particular um, very high assets of my business. I'm good to go. Um, and a lot of these uh, EDR companies, they literally will tell you this, right? They will tell you like, oh, yep, if you put this on your endpoint, you're good. <laughs> um, and we both know that is not the case. Um, if you 
if you're reliant on an EDR, um, there will be so much that will go through that. Um, and even the, the, uh, things that we create through our agents and our TTPs, a lot of times, well, most of the time that will just go through an EDR like Swiss cheese. Um, and, uh, but there, there's way too many, uh, companies, especially small businesses that don't really have say a red team or a sock to be able to look at their environment. Um, they're having to heavily rely on these EDRs, which are expensive, which eats yeah. up the cost of being able to actually get somebody in place to be able to look at networks, uh, even for a small amount of time. Right. So it's like, they may not look at it the entire time. Right. But they might be looking at it like one fourth of their time. Yeah. That ends up being a much better alternative than potentially just having an EDR in place. Yeah. And, and there are ways that's not to say like you, an EDR should be part of your defense in depth plan a hundred percent. Uh, and, and what you'll see is a lot of times people will have EDRs in place and then they will have, uh, some kind of alternative logging Sysmon, for example, in place right. to, to try to nug at the gaps that exist in EDRs. And, and a lot of them are very well-known gaps. And then you have, then you have at least more than just that EDR, but now you're starting to get into a lot of complexity, um, and, and what it should boil down to, again, I keep going back to this, is if you have an understanding of what your critical assets are, it lets you have a little bit more freedom in how you actually handle stuff uh, in terms of time, money, and people. So, if, for example, one of the things I always bring up is, do you think email is critical to your business? Um, and, and that's actually one the Air Force would ask, like, is email critical to your business? In a lot of cases, email is like, uh, so you have a PACE, uh, primary, a pay, what's called a PACE plan, primary alternative contingency and emergency communications. And like very rarely do you find email on that list uh, when it comes yeah. to operations. So that kind of begs the question, is email actually critical? Uh, there, sure, there's like, there's a lot of sensitive information on an email server, but you know, if email disappears tomorrow, let's say a, a threat actor pops your email server and your, your response plan is literally like, well, it's not critical to us. I'm turning it off. And you just turn it off. Like, is that a reasonable option for you, you know, in your, in your response plan? Is that a reasonable way for you to keep your business operations going and minimize and respond to the threat in your network? I, obviously, I can't make a, a sweeping statement about that, but I would venture a guess that for a large number of organizations, especially smaller ones, if, if your Exchange server gets popped, just turn it off. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and and hopefully, if, you, if you're, you're catching it early enough, you know, that prevents the threat from moving laterally to other systems. Just disconnect it from the network and handle the triage and incident response at that point. Um, but again, all of that starts with understanding your critical assets and having a not only that prioritized defended asset list, but some kind of uh, general plans on how you are going to respond to threats. Um, what are your standard operating procedures for assets on that critical asset list? What are your standard operati operating procedures for responding to threats against systems that aren't on your prioritized defended asset list? 
Uh, and thinking in that mindset is, it, at least in my mind, that helps me grok the, like, the magnitude of the problem. Yeah. It, and it's just not about just making those plans and then putting them in a book and then setting it on your desk and leaving it be, right? Yeah. There has to be a wargaming-like approach to that where you figure out all of your gaps the more times you go and test those things out, right? So it's like so many uh, companies, they, they, they write their instant response plan, they put it on the back burner, they say, hey, we have this instant response plan checkbox, right? And then they leave it be. And you have to go through that so many times, like at least four times a year, at least, where you, you find the gaps in all of the, um, all of your plan so that you can go back to your plan and rewrite those gaps in. Yeah. Um, even for things like an email system, an email system goes down, right? Well, do you have the phone numbers and your instant response plan to the people you need to contact? Um, <laughs> yeah. I like even thinking back about the last, like um, when, when Facebook went down, um, they didn't have access to the emails. They didn't have access to any of their system internals. So like, okay, my email goes down. Well, do I have access to like Slack, like my internal Slack, or do I have access to my internal uh, Mattermost or whatever you do to communicate? Maybe, maybe not. Um, yeah. And so, especially with a big company like that, they're having to rely on so many subsystems that are on their own network. Their own network goes down and now they're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so like there, there's so many situations and, and preparing for the bad day, um, yet we kind of always put the bad day in the back burner and say, oh, yeah. it's not going to happen today. And yeah. then when it does happen, then you're, you're goofed. And exactly. And this, you're, you're illuminating the point exactly that it, it a hundred percent is looking at security from an operations mindset and, and using your OODA loop, your observe, orient, decide, act loop to observe what's going on, orient yourself to the situation, make a decision on how you're going to respond to it, and then act on that decision, and then observe the outcome of that, right, and continue to act on that loop. And uh, one of the ways I always talk to people about this is like using meat space analogies, looking at a, like a building and how you, how you secure a building. So you have fences at the perimeter, you have video cameras watching the fences at the perimeter, uh, then you have uh, some kind of like egress, ingress, uh, uh, control point, for lack of a better word, where people go in and out of the building and those are controlled, usually have cameras on them, usually have some kind of badge reader. And then inside the rooms are locked and might have a badge reader on the door so you can only get access to certain areas. Um, and then as you get deeper and deeper into the security layers, you're spending more and more money to protect more and more critical areas of that building and this is a perfect one-for-one -one analogy to cybersecurity. you got a firewall at your perimeter you've got uh you know some kind of like snort detection rule that's watching your firewall watching the ingress and egress traffic on your network and you can do different things like uh ssl introspection so you're watching your perimeter then you have uh like network micro segmentation inside your network to make sure that traffic can only go where it's supposed to go you have some kind of internal IDS, IPS, um, internal NIDs, internal uh, host-based stuff. 
uh, and then you layer these, but you apply them and you spend your money where your critical assets are. Uh, and then you exercise it and you practice your plan and you practice your response and you build coalitions inside your organization. Like if you want to assess the efficacy of a security mechanism, go, if you're the, like the red team, for example, go grab somebody from the infrastructure team, go grab somebody from marketing, go grab somebody from the, uh, like the finance team and say, here's what I think your critical assets are. Like if I got to this, is this bad? Like th that's how you start, <laughs> yeah. that's how you start gr grokking the problem. And that's how you start identifying what really matters to your company. Right. And this is probably going down more of a rabbit hole, but when we think about now companies, especially small companies, utilizing a hybrid approach using cloud and, and your local network, it's starting to really make sense because relying on cloud services for your security backend is so much cheaper. So you don't have to have this, you know, large amount of money up front. You can utilize subscription-based model instead. And utilizing that approach, you have the security to secure your crown jewels on the on the cloud network and then move everything else back to your local network. Yeah. It's all just different different ways of handling that risk, right? Whether you're going yeah. to mitigate risk via via your own internal ser services and team and infrastructure, or you're going to uh, there are official terms that I'm forgetting from my my CISP. Whether you're going to uh, offload that risk to another organization and essentially they accept the risk on the behalf of you. But you, you get my point, right? Like there's the risk is still there. It's just a matter of how you're going to, uh, how you're going to mitigate and, and minimize the potential negative right. outcomes from that risk. I mean, it even goes so far as to saying that, um, as a small company. So if you're a small company today, like one of the best things you could do when you first start off is to understand like, do I actually have the resources? Do I really have the time? Do I really have the ability uh, to secure my own equipment or should I just, uh, are, like, should I just migrate everything to the cloud from the beginning, right? And there's like, yeah, there's that, that like subscription cost, right? And they get you every single month. But that could be a much better solution than just like, all right, well, um, I'm going to have uh, a uh, LDAP solution and I'm going to do everything from my own home base um, and I'll do my like I'll, I'll take care of my own firewall. I'll take care of my own my own networking solutions and uh, I'll totally get it done. And, you know, six months later, you don't have the time. And now you're goofed because you, you like, you've let those things just stagnate for six months. Yeah. Well, you know, if I had my say, I would, I would tell most organizations, if you have users on desktop computers that are part of your domain, start by minimizing your attack surface. Don't extend your domain out to desktops. Just make all of your people use Chromebooks. <laughs> get get rid well, of that attack have, get rid of that attack we do have surface. a solution we do have a solution that we're coming up with that uh helps people that have tons of workstations and, that's true um and so that that 
uh, our protect solution, which uh, basically uh, teaches users um, more instead of basically having a user go through cybersecurity training, um, this does cybersecurity training on the fly, right? So like it it will send out a um, an attack, uh, a, a benign attack into a, a a user's box, and they're they're trained how like say ransomware or ransom note. Uh, how you would deal with that, and then provides context and 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 news news type things to basically uh, educate users uh, of why it's important. Yeah, and realistically, what it boils down to, uh, like as a result of that product, you're able to quantify risk across your network. Who, like, what what are the most likely people that are gonna double click on an element or submit their password to a password prompt. And like being able to quantify that risks helps you again, understand your threat profile, but also know if, if these people have access to critical assets where you need to spend your time and money. And I think that's, that's really the, the power of having that kind of tool kind of capability. You you basically get to see all of your users and how they interact with things. Yeah. Um, and from the user perspective, it's like, you know, it it is nice to go through security training every so often as a security engineer, but even that gets kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, doing this, it's sort of like a challenge. So, like, you go through challenges, uh, which is yep. a lot more fun. 100%. And, uh, you also get to, to like... Um, the the train the way the training works is the training sort of uh, adapts to your style and how you've dealt with threats. So if you knew that that was a ransomware note, like it knows as well, and so it's not going to necessarily have you go through the same process as somebody who clicked on the note and said, uh, "I have no idea what this is." Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're you're the person when. You know, credential prompts pop up. You just kind of don't focus and you just kind of, oh, well, put my credentials in. Uh, Being able to give you that immediate feedback, but also like helping you understand the impact that that can have to the larger organization in real time is such a a fascinating concept on, on its face, just from that nothing else aside. But also having to do some kind of real-time training associated with that and being told immediately here's how you can like identify that this was probably not legit identify what you need to do as a result of that not being legit nobody retains slide decks (laughs) right yeah no one wants to go like in Everybody who usually, like, I can tell you, at least from my experience, is that when you do the cybersecurity training, you're probably doing other training as well. And at that point, but by the point you do cybersecurity training, you've probably done, like, some type of other compliance trainings, and you're just, like, clicking, you're, like, going through the motions, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I, even as a security engineer, it's like, well, I already know this stuff, and you, you click through it. Um, and you, you try to get through it as quick, quick as possible. So then you could go and move on to your actual work for the day. I don't know about you, Chris. I, I definitely have never loaded up four training modules at the same time and <laughs> clicked next through all four, all at the same time. I've never done such a thing. 
it's uh it's it's working through the uh same same uh scenarios that you would do to like on a a uh a take home uh open book note test <laughs> you 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 basically uh uh control f and you find what you need and you're good to go <laughs> yeah and and that's that's part of the problem right N- nobody cares it's oh here's another thing i'm just yeah, gonna this I, is something you have to do yeah you don't retain it and there, there's only a certain amount of gamification you can do like have you have you done the dod's ia challenge thing to get uh the the ia awareness challenge there's tons of memes out there about it but it's like i think i did yeah th- there's this one scene where it's it, it like actions will happen and there's like one scene or some something where somebody takes your cell phone like what do you do when somebody takes your cell phone and i forget what the exact answer is but it's like you know just report it to your security manager or something <laughs> <laughs> but but what like how is that helping you on a day-to-day basis know right. what like what a real threat looks like how like the odds of some random person coming up to you in a coffee shop and just like staring you in the eyes and grabbing your cell phone and walking away like yeah. <laughs> how is that realistic yeah like it, i mean i'm even thinking of scenarios where it's like you're in the office and and like usually security uh, or uh, it security will send out like some type of, of phishing email and the the thing that happens every single time someone gets a phishing email and they click on it by accident and then they tell everyone else about how they had this phishing email and what it looked like. And then everybody else just knows not to click on them. <laughs> so you never get that training, right? Like they, they never get to that point because somebody goofed and then everybody else found out about it and knew what to look for. Um, and it ha- like it works for that very small amount of time until the IT security department sends another phishing email that looks completely different. And then it, the whole process happens again, right? Yeah. Um, and so this is sort of designed, like Protect is designed to where you don't even have to send out the same attack to same users, right? Um, so you can send out different things. Um, and so you're not having that uh, hive mind uh, that will uh, sort of protect for that small amount of time and then no one really gets anything out of it. So, um, yeah, let's talk about uh, Operator 1.3 release. We've been releasing that over the course of the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, and so it's slowly but surely getting getting to... Uh, well, so we, we released the full release uh, this week. Um, so... Uh, it's out. It's ready. Um, it, you should get a prompt to be able to download it if you uh, have Operator installed. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, uh, quite a few new features. It's a pretty big update. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I'm going to be publishing a blog post, which will have a fairly thorough breakdown. I, same thing I did for Operator 1.2, which basically highlights the diff between 1.1 and 1.2. I'll do the same for 1.3. Uh, but the biggest new quote unquote feature is that we've uh, created that abstraction layer between uh, operator itself and like the electron wrapper. So now you can run operator as just a headless, we call it headless, but it's it run it as essentially a node package um, uh, on a, 
Ubuntu server, for example, and interact with it solely via API. And as a result of doing that breakout, we've been able to in basically let us compile a packaged version of operator that we can forward deploy onto a redirector. And then we use gRPC connections between uh, a whole bunch of team members to let people like interactively connect to a redirector and see all of the results, data, agents connected to that one redirector, uh, as opposed to having any kind of like weird individual agent management. Now it's all just offloaded onto the redirector. And we're going to be publishing a whole bunch more updates to that in particular as we flesh out some of the the more intricate components of it. Um, but in the meantime, you can still use like the original switchboard if you're just looking for that traditional redirector um, experience. Correct me if I'm wrong, Alex. We, we did uh, deprecate the cloud plugin, and now it's just yes. the Connect. Switch, yes. So. so, yeah, the new plugin is called Connect. And it, what you'll notice inside Operator is there's, uh, there's a plugin section. And then there's a left-hand sidebar, and the left-hand sidebar has the operate section, the train section, and editor, If you, and now connect. Uh, the interesting thing is editor and connect are actually plugins, um, and they're what we call native plugins. Basically, they're compiled React code, um, web-packed JavaScript, essentially, that gets loaded into operator as a plugin. And that lets us do updates to editor and updates to connect uh, very easily uh, as opposed to having to like release a whole new version of operator in order to update those capabilities. And what we've done now is you'll notice cloud has been deprecated because now the functionality of cloud being able to provision uh, redirectors and uh, like Windows and Linux hosts out on AWS has all been wrapped into that native connect plugin. And there's so many nice creature comforts, like automatically resolving your AWS credentials. We added region support, which is fantastic. So you can uh, you can deploy your redirectors on any AWS region as long as you have yeah, you're your not locked to East. Not locked to <laughs> US East one. Uh, you can use any any region now. And there is a uh, blog post out there if you're looking to get started on how you actually use Connect. We've uh, published something called Cloudy with a Chance of Redirectors. Wait, cloudy with a yeah, something to yeah, that effect. That, that sounds right. That sounds right. <laughs> and there's also another blog post out there that I put together on how you actually set up AWS so that you can provision redirectors in a region. So those two should get you started with using the Connect plugin. Uh, but yeah, that's that's been a whole lot of work and effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tons of work on the back end from that, and uh, yeah, it's uh, 1.3 release was a huge update for us. Um, so a lot of cool stuff in that. Yeah. Speaking of cool things, you have, uh, published our official, official first prototype of mobile device support. You want, please share some of the details on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and pulling my hair out, trying to get this to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I released some, uh, uh, this week, uh, some Android ADB shell commands uh, that you can run with our Schism agent. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a uh, back-end process you have to do in order to get these to run. So um, we're relying on a uh, Linux emulation environment to be able to run our um, 
our schism agent and we should be able to get other agents running as well so like our our numa agent um will will release something so it will work uh within the emulator um and then once you have that working you can then uh use uh AB adbd uh to create a, a adb server um and then uh connect that to your terminal emulator and then from that point you can run adb commands um, so you could also run these commands. Um, uh, so if you actually had a way to connect, so if you had a setup to where you had uh, your Android device, uh, you could connect that to say a Linux terminal um, uh, through the server, and then you could still run these commands uh, just the same. So mm -hmm. uh, there's tons of different possibilities to be able to run these commands. Um, it's the first start. Um, I'm also looking at doing some iOS type stuff, uh, which should be fun. Um, uh, but for the current moment, both of them have to, uh, or both Android or iOS, when we get to that point, will likely need to be rooted. Yeah, um, we're we're gonna sidestep the rooting problem for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and then also looking to potentially uh, write a, a formal agent for Android, so you could put an application on your phone um, yeah. and run specific uh ttps that would be already within the the agent itself um that takes a lot of work from the standpoint of uh doing um uh permission type stuff so it takes a takes a long time to do yeah um, and it sort of separates out a lot of the ttps that we've already written that we that would be nice to run so like there's tons of ttps especially within the discovery section that you could totally run on the Linux emulator through your phone. And you don't need, um, so to get Schism running uh, on your device, uh, you do not need uh, root privileges on the device itself. So you can totally get Schism to run, you can totally run TTPs on it. It just won't get you the ADB section. So to get to the ADB shell commands and things like that, you would need root access. But it's, a, it's yeah. really, really cool. We have some cool TTPs in there. Um, you can get uh, uh, screen grabs, you can do uh, screen recording, uh, you can add and remove programs, add new users. So yeah. And, and cool we stuff. do have that prototype agent. Um, I think I named it LAMP or LAMP, whatever. I don't even know how to pronounce yeah, yeah. that. I picked the hardest. Limic. Limic. <laughs> I picked the hardest tool song to pronounce because I figured the, the Android agent was going to be one of the hardest ones for us to have to uh, get working with operator, but that's, that's in our backlog uh, in terms of things we want to accomplish. And we'll, we'll probably have several iterations as we move forward on that. Yeah. Um, that was one of the original things I had looked at and then um, I've already got some updates to that. And so we're, we'll, It'll be a f probably a few more months um, and finding the right time to do it. But there, yeah, I'm already it'll be an APK file. I was, uh, yeah, as I mentioned back to you, like I'm already looking forward to uh, the industrial control system agents that we're going to start yeah. putting together uh, and like spamming Modbus and spamming <laughs> <laughs> other other bus protocols. Like, what what can we realistically do there? in terms of emulation and helping uh, people who have SCADA ICS systems, that'll be uh, fascinating. Maybe. Yeah. We'll... When, you, when you said that to me yesterday um, and, and 
uh, thinking about it further, I was like, oh man, you know what would be cool? Like do some can bus stuff too. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> can bus would be great. There's a, a whole bunch of like medical devices that we can look into that use their own unique protocols. I mean, once yeah. you start diving into that more like physical world industrial systems, there's just a whole lot of interesting stuff that we can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thinking about the CAN bus stuff. Uh, so I don't think you were around when we did the um, uh, ha- or truck in a box. Do you remember truck in a box mm-hmm. from CFT? So yeah, so DARPA uh, had a uh, a program called Cyber Fast Track, and one of the Cyber Fast Track um, things was uh, truck in a box, and basically it was this uh, acrylic box, and it had a a steering wheel on it, and um, uh, tons of ECUs uh, from trucks, um, and the whole idea there was to just see what you could do about hacking a truck. Um, and the original creator ended up uh, creating something called uh, Truck in a Pocket. And so uh, you could test all your, your CAN bus connections through that. Um, so like having something like that and be able to, to test uh, like ECUs uh, would be super duper fun. Yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. And that'll just be, <laughs> yeah, once we have people on board, hey, a shameless plug, if you are in, interested in industrial control systems and want to do some offensive engineering about it or against it uh hit hit me up or hit chris up and we'll we'll have our contact info here but yeah uh, we're definitely looking for people with that kind of expertise that would be interested in helping us flesh that out in operator yeah absolutely um yeah both of our dms are open on twitter um or you can definitely email us um we would love to talk um so on the note of doing other cool stuff you got jambi yeah. So, yeah. So, w- one of the things that I want to provide to our customers is kind of a like a stage one, less fully fledged agent for all platforms. And we have Numa and Numa EX, which we're going to be cycling here soon because they're pretty signatured. So we'll be putting out a new flag flagship tier uh, stage two type agent. So what we wanted to provide is like an in-memory script-based agent for Windows, Linux, and Mac. And on the Mac side, I went ahead and just made a simple modular um, JXA-based agent. And the concept there is that you're kind of compositing together the agent as you are queuing TTPs to go to the agent. So it's, you know, modular agents, you can install capability, delete capability. The idea here is like capability will only be installed when operator the planner itself tells the agent hey you need to run this ttp the agent will just receive that ttp check whether or not internally it has that capability if not it'll like resolve that capability and then run it so i wanted to do something similar with windows um, and i went with just a simple powershell agent because that helps a lot of people with their detections Uh, but there's also this unique thing about the way script block logging and the way like AMSI detections work, where if you paste in like a big script block that has an AMSI patch functionality in it, uh, 100% going to get flagged by Defender as like this is a malicious script, so it was blocked. But if right. you paste in each line of it individually, it's not going to flag. So the, the idea here with Jambi is like we build out a whole bunch of individual modules that are essentially very discrete 
PowerShell commands, then you can composite together like more advanced techniques using these very small building blocks. So the idea here is you have like, uh, let's say you want to create a type that's going to let you uh, create a, like a sorry a Windows type inside a PowerShell session using add type where you're going to compile some C sharp code and expose some kind of class that will let you like load libraries, load uh, get like handles to function addresses, maybe copy memory from one area to another. So you'd have a TTP that would literally do nothing but just like create that type. That type can then be passed as a fact to other modules, and those modules can then leverage that type to do things with that particular Windows type that you just created. Uh, so in Jombie, that's kind of how we are doing the like AMSI patching process and ETW patching process. Basically, you have a module that comes in and just does nothing but build a type, which in and of itself is not very malicious. Uh, that type is then available if it, the build is successful, I should say, if the import is successful, that type becomes available to operators planner. And then that type can then be passed to other modules. And in our case, we have like an AMSI patch module and a, an ETW patch module. So we've separated out the type creation and like components of the AMSI patch. But let's say that AMSI patch gets detected and signatured. So all we need to do is essentially break that up into even smaller components and say, now we're doing like, not we're not doing the patch or we're not doing the like getting the handle to the library, getting the function we want to patch and writing the patch bytes. Like we would have a TTP that is write ANSI patch bytes and that's going to load a module that'll create the patch bytes. Then we'll have another module that will say, do X function, which would be like uh, get the handle to uh, and uh, get the handle to NTDLL or something, right? And that handle could then be made available to other TTPs, but they'll be passed in as essentially single line PowerShell commands, which lets us work around that like in inherent built-in AMSI scanning process. Yeah. It's just a cool concept that I had been mulling on, and seeing it all come together was pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's a really awesome agent, um, and so it's uh, yeah definitely. Uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, definitely check it out. Take a run yeah. on it. It's really cool. Yeah, and it's it's great for your de uh, detection teams, um, like understanding. There's a whole lot of underlying technique happening there, so being able to nug through all of those different types of techniques and writing detections for those different types of techniques is probably going to be a a valuable exercise. Yep. Yeah, definitely uh, some nice rules you could make from that uh, to try to detect it from from being on your corporate network later on. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, one of our one of our customers that I was working with, he he's uh, he's doing uh, like an assumed breach type of thing, and I was helping him get Jambi set up, and he's like, "Yeah, it was great. The customer." Uh, ran the command uh, and they were able to detect it. They were able to see what was going on. So it was, it was a big win for them because like that assumed breach and and more realistic way of delivering payloads into a system, they were able to detect that, which is great for them. Yep. So uh, we have uh, a f quite a few contact drops that we're going to be doing over the next month. Um, 
so yeah we've got uh, a few podcasts coming up so um i think we're looking to potentially drop like three separate podcasts um so um one of those will be uh because we're meeting in person so yeah whole team is getting together which will be fantastic um if you didn't know the majority of our team is either in canada uh or uh two of us are on the west coast uh and the rest of us are on the east coast of the u.s so um, yeah yeah we've been a company for what a year now We've been a company, yeah. basically a company for a year now, and most of us have never met in person, which is pretty cool yeah. uh, when you think about it, but also pretty not cool because, you know, you would <laughs> love to see your coworkers in person for a change. <laughs> so uh, luckily for me, uh, since uh, I'm sort of in the, uh, the only one who's sort of in the headquarters of Prelude, <laughs> everyone's coming to Seattle, so that'll be nice. Lucky you. <laughs> the only place where we have an office (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah so we'll be meeting in person so we'll have uh, quite a few uh con chip drops uh just because we're all together um so it makes things a lot easier um we'll probably have at least well we'll definitely have at least one twitch stream uh in december but uh there's definitely uh, the possibility of having more twitch streams as well um I'd love to do a video type podcast um, on Twitch. So maybe that's something that we'll do. Um, and then we have quite a few YouTube content drops. Um, I know I'll be dropping some stuff on Protect um, and on uh, the uh, Connect plugin. But I'm sure we'll have uh, a few other um, things within YouTube as well. So. Definitely uh, a lot of content being dropped uh, over the course of December. Yep. It'll be an interesting month. Yeah. And um, we actually have a new way of sharing things with our community as well. Um, we have a new uh, Reddit community. So I know that Alex just stood that up. Yeah. Check us out. r slash prelude org. We'll be there yeah. adding stuff slowly but surely uh, for I, I tend to use Reddit more than I use anything else, so. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Figured it makes sense for us to have one. Feel free to post your, your operator memes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Funny you say that. I, uh, my brother actually is, like, the ultimate meme lord, and I asked him to make some, like, red team-oriented memes, and he actually sent me four pretty funny memes from a dude who knows literally, he's an aircraft mechanic, he doesn't know anything about cyber. (laughs) He sent some pretty (laughs) funny memes, so I'll see if I can pull those up and I'll post them on the Reddit. So so get ready to get on Reddit to to get your memes on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, uh, lots of uh, cool stuff. Um, If... um, if you haven't uh, downloaded Operator yet, this is the perfect time to do it. Um, with our new 1.3 release, you can download Operator at uh, prelude.org. Um, you can follow us on Twitch, uh, so twitch.tv slash prelude.org. Um, and so you can get uh, when we'll be doing our Twitch streams. Um, our podcast is on all major podcast uh, platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts and uh our blog uh so we we post a lot on the blog um if you haven't uh, subscribed to our blog yet um we're going to be doing a lot more with our blog this for this this the rest of the year and next year 
and that's at feed.prelude.org. And I don't think I'm forgetting something, but if I am, we'll definitely have all of, oh, our Discord. If you haven't followed us on Discord, definitely do that as well. Um, everything that we talk about today will be on the description. And with that, Prelude signing off. <laughs> <laughs>